Well, hello and welcome back to the View Church Podcast. We are so excited to be sitting down with Scott Reel and Sarah Hamill of Restore Small Groups. And uh, Jeff uh, and George are excited to introduce them to you and to talk about uh, the personal relationship they have and the work that they do. And I think really the best place to start uh, is, George, for you to kind of introduce Scott and Sarah uh, a little bit of your own personal relationship with them and kind of the aim of what we're talking about in this specific episode of this podcast. Thank you, Jake. Uh, Scott and Sarah are not only dear friends, but uh, for the last seven years, I've been learning so much from them. And specifically at uh, Hope Park, the, the church we were at, over about a four-year period, we, we took about 400 people through Restore Small Group's Journey to Freedom. And so uh, I fell in love with both Scott and Sarah, um, the ways that they were helping a church love their community toward, toward healing. And I've learned so much from each of them, so I'll just say something quickly about what I've learned from each of them. Uh, Scott taught me how to hear the question of Jesus uh, personally asking me, do you want to be made well? <laughs> and uh, his book starts off with that question, and it's so profound, and it's, it's a beautiful question to ask regularly. And then um, what perhaps might my life look like if Jesus actually did the thing that I wanted him to make me well in. And, uh, and then Scott's also taught me so much about uh, the kind of hope that learns to trust in God's love that, you know, even as that story in the scripture where this man, you know, is trying to get to the, w- the well, the water to be made well, but he can only go so far. And um, it's the love of God that uh, meets us in that place and then walks us and guides us through it. So I've learned so much from Scott on how valuable that can be to uh, a church community. And then Sarah, um, and I've been in groups with both of these, uh, both Scott and Sarah, and, and uh, they're just beautiful human beings to, to guide people through that kind of question. But with Sarah, um, uh, I've learned so much about what it means to listen in love and with compassion. Uh, I, I'm, I'm ADD, so I quickly get distracted in group, and I marvel at Sarah, her ability to hear the important um, things, to give witness to what people are struggling with or what they're celebrating in their lives, and she just has such a tender heart and a, and a spirit, and uh, she's the executive director of Restore, and Scott is the founding director, and um, we have uh, so much more to learn from them, so I'm so glad they're here with us today. Um, and they'll share some of uh, what they're learning in group and, and how they see groups helping to heal the world around us. Yeah, George, thanks so much for sharing that. And I know that when we actually first started talking about recording this episode, um, I was just overjoyed because I know them uh, personally. And there's not many people you talk to that know these people that don't have a massive amount of energy and love to the, to the, to the vocalization of what the experience is like being in around Restore Small Groups as well as being with them individually. Like, it's... It's a beautiful thing. So, Jeff, why don't you talk a little bit before we let Scott and Sarah talk? Why don't you talk a little bit about your own personal experience uh, with Scott and Sarah? Which speaks to the impact these groups have. Right. We had restored small groups at Hope Park, and I think the first time through, uh, instead of staying at home with uh, our five-year-old son, my wife decided to take advantage of the free free child care at church. (laughs) And uh, the way that the only way she could really do that is to be part of a group so she right. didn't sign up for a group because she thought she needed healing mm. she signed up for a group <laughs> uh so that she could be out of the house and and wyatt could have some good uh fun time with and playing with his friends and right. child care but she 
came to understand some things uh, for herself and the mm. restore groups that that really surprised her. And uh, the process uncovered some wounds in her life that she was thoroughly unaware of. Mm. And so through restore, um, she began to engage in some of these wounds and mm. she started to uh, get therapy and uh, work through uh, some of the things that, that restore uncovered. So restore was a big turning point mm. for her and the way that she thought about uh, healing mm. and uh, the way she experienced herself and the way she experienced her wounds. And so um, she would, she would say that, uh, that were it not for the restore small group, she probably would continually be in this state of uh, a, a limping state and mm. not even really understanding why. Mm. So, well, I know that um, as you're as you were saying that, it kind of reminded me um, there is the traditional model of therapy, but that's always one on one with the therapist, kind of in closed doors, sound machine on, you know, privacy, privacy. But we're talking about healing within a group, which is a really interesting dynamic because you would think that takes in a massive amount of vulnerability. But to create safety within a group dynamic is is a is a huge thing. And so, George, I was going to ask you. Um, when, you're, when we're talking about the importance of groups, uh, I wanted you to see if you kind of just wanted to ask Scott and Sarah a little bit just about um, how, how that started and why the, why the focus on groups instead of trying to do one-on-one, uh, where the power is found in groups. If you just kind of want to interview Scott and Sarah just a little bit about why you're such a believer uh, as a church organization in getting together, not only as a community, but then to build groups outside of that community and how healing it can be. If you want to just kind of start and ask them some questions about how that got started for them would be great. Yeah, I guess we'll start with Sarah. Um, Sarah, it's it's always remarkable to me, a group experience, uh, how quickly they begin to feel safe. Mm. And I know you guys go through great effort to create that kind of safe space, and it really is safe. Um, but uh, what, what goes into that, um, and how is that helpful with you know, creating a place where people can be more vulnerable and open. Mm. Yes, so I would say that almost everyone comes in to a group experience anxious and uh, skeptical because they don't know exactly how it's going to go. And I would probably chance to say that some people have had group experiences that turned out to be negative in some way Mm. where they wanted to be vulnerable, but once they got into the process, realized that that was not how it was going to go. So I think we're very sensitive to the fact that when people come in, especially in the first couple of meetings, we really have to be gentle Mm -hmm. with them. We are treating them with kid gloves (laughs) in a sense, Mm -hmm. but also with just a uh, awareness of what would I want Mm -hmm. in a group setting? How would I want to know that I'm safe? And so we really just have to walk the talk in the group space. We have to be vulnerable. We have to be vulnerable first. We have to tell people with confidence, we've got it, we've got you, we're not going to let you be unsafe, you know, we're going to enforce the guidelines, and we mean that, and, uh, you know, if we start to go astray, we're going to, we're going to bring it back, and I think what we're trying to model is, at the end of the day, a secure attachment. Mm -hmm. It took us years to name that, Mm -hmm. um, to really know what that, what we were talking about when we were talking about the safety of group, Mm -hmm. but essentially what we're talking about is a family environment Mm -hmm. the way that it should have been in which I as the facilitator I see you Mm -hmm. I hear you 
I'm not going to try to talk you out of your feelings. I'm not going to try to contradict what you think. Mm. I'm not going to try to convert you. I'm not challenging your beliefs, but I am seeing you for mm. who you are in group. And I think that's just, that sounds, it's all, it is intangible in some ways, right. but that's essentially what we're trying to do is give someone the opportunity to be seen for sometimes a very first time in their whole life. Yeah. And I, I think that secure attachment, as you were talking about, like most people when they walk in, um, th- but that's established. And I, I'm glad you said that because uh, the energy of the leader, the safety of the leader, uh, that has to be established early. And if anything I would imagine gets uh, off with that, it can quickly be taken away. It was very fright. Kid gloves was a good, a good word to use there. So um, Scott, how about you? I mean, I know that uh, what Sarah was saying, but when you were thinking through uh, starting this yourself when you started to write, uh, what was it about doing it in a group setting that really spoke to your heart in regards to um, the impact of uh, of doing it as a group versus trying to do some one-on-one stuff? What was the value of the group that you saw and found when you first started Restore? Well, a small group, like Sarah's talking about, it provides a secure attachment, the first healthy family environment many of our participants have ever been in. But I had a friend who was a psychiatrist and it was right back uh, when I was starting all this 20-some years ago. And I said, what is it about a small group that makes it so powerful? Mm. And he said, universality, absolutely. Mm. And I had never heard that term before. And I asked him what that meant. He goes, when you realize you're not alone. Mm. And I think that's probably what we call our small groups of healing community. And why we also keep our groups closed so that the confidentiality and the intimacy is there. But when others... I just got doing, actually doing a group right now in Africa on mm. Zoom. And they, I was telling Sarah, over, almost all of them said, I'm going to share something I've never shared with anybody before. Mm. Because other people were sharing similar struggles, whether it was abuse or just shameful things that have happened and painful things. And it brought them out of their isolation. Mm. And I think that's what makes small groups so powerful, mm. um, especially if, they're, if it's, you know, um, intimate mm. to where as we say intimacy is into me you see um, mm. and we know that I, you guys know i'm a big richard Rohr fan but mm-hmm. just that he's making his point through the trinity that i've been studying him lately that that we are so relational we're mm. far more relational than we know and through dr kurt thompson's books anatomy of the soul he mm. says there's no greater need for any human being than to be fully being known mm. And he, he talked about the secure attachment. And then he went on to talk about the, the marrying. And then Rohr talked about the divine marrying. But in a small group, the group actually becomes the body mm. of Christ. And it mirrors back and reflects back what the person can never see in isolation, ever. Mm. And so w- what we talk about is we form a, a, a view of ourselves in the world. We call that a paradigm. And all my responses are going to be dictated by that. And that right. will never be changed right. if I'm alone. Mm. So that's why I think what makes us, we've learned this over sure. 20 years. I mean, I, I didn't know any of this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I see how powerful it is. The divine mirror, it's a secure attachment, and it helps a person see what they just cannot see alone. Mm. Um, and I really believe that's grace. It's grace. Mm. God does for me what I cannot do for myself. Mm. Um, and we live in a society that just becomes more and more and more isolated and mm. lonely. Yeah. It's an epidemic. And so the need for small groups for community, I think, is just greater than ever. And I can just say one thing. 
I know you guys are a church, but you can sit in a big group every mm. Sunday. Yes. And have no connection. Yes. Whatsoever to anybody there. Right. I'm just listening. And there's nothing. Worship is great. But I think our church has got to, as you guys know, move towards building community mm. within. Or we're missing because otherwise there'll never be transformation. Mm. That's powerful. It sounds like even what you're saying is that it was it wasn't um, something that you thought was important. You're saying it's in it is kind of it's it's uh, integral. The the group aspect is what makes the the shift, the power, uh, the content's great, but it is it is the group that is actually doing the work with each other, and that's what makes it so powerful. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. Roar was actually saying that more than we want to admit it, we are made or unmade by other people. Mm. I mean, that that is how God created us. Mm. Uh, Thompson said that the moment we're born, we come into the world seeking who's seeking us. Oh, man. I mean, he says, but then throughout our whole life, we need to be in that same type process. Mm. And so you think about that. If I lose that, if I lose that reflection, I'm in danger. Mm, that's really powerful. We, we, it seems like we live in a very much, um, I've got this on my own, right? It's kind of the, the society we're in now is all about like, well, I don't need, I don't need anybody. We're in a very independent Western society. But you see with the stats, we were talking about this previously before we even started recording is the, the data is not showing us that's working. It, it, the data of the mental health statistics, I know you both know a lot about this and study it. It's, it's awful and it's only getting worse. And so I can imagine that, um, you know, having that as an integral part of it, not only is healing for the members, but it also is um, breaking those paradigms, right? So it's not just about the group. It's about also having the ability to investigate your own paradigms in a safe environment. So then there's breakthrough. So it's not just the healing. It's also a massive amount of self-understanding through other people. You know, because I say, uh, Gerald May says in Addiction and Grace, that without awareness, mm. there can never be transformation. Mm -hmm. Awareness is the beginning of transformation, and that, I think, is what we have seen over the years. The groups provide a place, for the first time in many people's lives, they become aware mm. of what's been going on inside of them. Wow. And I would chance to say that most people, the question they're really asking themselves, even if they don't vocalize it, is, what's wrong with me? Mm -hmm. You know. And I think people will come into group uh, believing they're the only ones I do think I think that's why group is so important because counseling well I've done plenty of counseling one-on-one sure. -on -one. right uh, but in this same sense I'm having a dialogue with my counselor and my counselor is being supportive sure but at the end of the day I'm gonna walk out with the lingering question of is it me is mm -hmm. it is it just me mm -hmm. <laughs> like is this my own internal is there anybody else in the world who thinks these thoughts or has these struggles and that's what Scott was saying about universality which is so beautiful is just getting into a group with other people yeah. and realizing, and this is the miracle of group that I, and I know George has experienced it where you see similar problems yeah. or similar struggles, but sometimes in group, the most unique things that you would think there's nobody else in here who has ever been through that, mm -hmm. experienced that. And somehow God just put these people in the group together mm. and they're like, really that happened to you too. Wow. And that to me, there are certain aspects of group, the reason I keep coming back and I cannot get enough of it that are so completely, uh, I cannot explain. Yeah. They are miraculous. Mm. You see people get into group who just need to be there at that moment in time with those people. Yeah. For some reason, they all got led there at that moment. Mm. 
Um, there are moments, and this happened, I think, even to Scott today, where people will say, we always say this as facilitators, the moment you live for, because it's so precious, is when someone goes, I'm going to tell you something I've never told oh, anyone before. Man. Mm. And you lean into that moment because you go, somehow, the, this miracle is happening right in front of me. Like, I'm watching somebody mm. let go of something that they've been carrying their whole lives. Mm. And I don't really attribute that to... I, I don't take credit for that as yeah, a facilitator. Right. There's some movement of the Holy Spirit Absolutely. in group that I cannot explain, but it happens every single time mm. and it happens quickly. Mm. <laughs> it's the whole, wherever two or three are gathered, yes. boom. And it's not, it's not orchestrated. It's not planning like, oh, that happens on the third meeting. Right. It's like, just step back, let it, yeah. let it go. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I have a question um, because it sounds like what we're talking about is not like going to small group at, you know, Sarah's house on a right. Wednesday night yes. and there's coffee and donuts. Um, Those are nice too. So <laughs> if we could, I would like for you to explain what exactly we're taught. What is a restore small group? Yeah. Um, are there particular, is there a particular training for facilitators and, and talk a little bit about that because it sounds like the weighty issues that come up in order to have people, and invite people into vulnerability, uh, there are certain parameters that, mm. that you want to pay attention to to ensure that that vulnerability is honored. So can you talk a little bit about what you do, what your groups are, and, and then I have a question for Scott. Yeah. Well, I'll do one part and let you do the other part. But the, the vulnerability, there's, I don't know of anything that a human being resists more mm -hmm. than being vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And I was going to say, in what we were talking about just a second ago, that what you're describing is the power of shame. Mm. That's why I'm not telling anybody else. You know, today one of the questions in our group was, is there something that you're really afraid of people knowing about you that you're, mm. and they all went with, I'm gonna tell you something I never know. And so you hear things like abuse, you know, violence, addiction and things like that. Uh, one lady was, she said, she's never been to have children, she's barren and mm. her husband rejected her so she's, just all these things that, that, that we feel shame, and shame isolates. But I think in a small group where the grace of Christ is so powerful, mm -hmm. is grace draws us out of that isolation. So mm -hmm. that, for me, goes all the way back to 20 years ago. I was struggling with stuff that I never talked to anybody about. I wanted to be in a small group. Um, and so that's what initiated. But from the very beginning, I saw the difference between a support group mm. A church Bible study group, which I had gone to many, but I never told anybody the truth about what I was struggling with until I got into a closed group mm. where it had a limited number of people, and it was only those people who were going to be in that group for the eight weeks, just mm. us ten folks. Mm. And that gave me the opportunity to risk to be vulnerable. Mm. So... I was just thinking to myself probably how many times I've told people what, what we do or I've said, you know, I work for Restore Small Groups and we do support groups. And often I think people's reaction is, so you just sit around in a group and you just complain mm. about your life. You know, you just kind of <laughs> yeah. uh, moan, yeah. moan about how things things are bad. Or yeah. And I'm always amazed. I'm, that really is the opposite of, of what we're doing. Yeah. And I think a lot of that too, it's – I've always said it's a combination of the process itself that we've set up and then the curriculum, the questions that we're asking. Right. 
at the same time. So the, the process has to be, I think, and the reason I think these groups work is that the process has to be set up in a structured way that creates safety. So we always have guidelines for the group that we operate in. That's a that's number one right out of the gate in the group. We're telling people these are the these are not rules. These are here to keep us all within boundaries, yeah. relationship boundaries that keep us safe. Right. And then we have a starting kind of ritual that we do, which is checking in with our feelings. Mm. And um, we do that usually for the first 15 or 20 minutes of the group. And then we'll move on to the curriculum and ask the important questions of the week. And we're always as facilitators, facilitators trying to get from point A to point B with our group. We know where we're going right. or trying to get to mm. within a certain flexible frame because I think that we uh, allow the group to be what it needs to be, mm. whatever all the groups are different because you've got different personalities in every one. Mm. But I do think that that has to be, there has to be some structure to it and then there has to be some purpose. Like where are we going on this journey? Mm. And as we really know the ending spot, right? we're just taking everyone along the journey with us. Uh, but we are not just sitting down really in a group and just going, eh, it's just a free for all. We're just going to, yeah. you know, talk about whatever we want to talk about. So, uh, so I do think that structure is what keeps it safe. And in uh, what moves people along mm. in the process, because yeah. we need we need to be having meaningful discussion about our lives, not right. just yeah. processing yeah. Um, our lives. So, but that's funny though that you th- that was the first thing because that's exactly what I would imagine everybody would say is oh so you just do this right? There's such a immediate assumption when it comes to group therapy, group anything else because it's almost like there's no progress, there's no breakthroughs, there's no paradigm shifts. But you're talking about that's the aim. <laughs> the aim is so people can come in and yes, be understood and be safe, but really there's things that are getting unlocked in them as they're sitting there. Uh, that's really powerful. Jeff, you had a question. You had said you had one more question. Yeah, I wanted to ask Scott about gender differences. So in your experience with these groups, do you see a, dif- a difference in the way that men respond mm. versus women? I mean, you and I both played football. I think both of these guys played football and 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 in that in that masculine culture where it's for men to show vulnerability um is is really a cardinal sin um Mm. and so i wondered if if what how you experienced male vulnerability uh in these groups and um is the group setting does it draw it out of men maybe a little bit more effectively than say therapy or, you know, a, a, a man going to his pastor or something like that? That's a great question. First of all, men come to the groups much slower than women. Mm. Um, you know, and men are just petrified. Mm. It's, it's their greatest fear of, of, of being known. Mm. Because they're they're confident that they're going to be rejected. Uh, I don't know what it is about uh, men and women, but I notice that a male. This is just my opinion. Seems to be more sensitive to rejection mm. than than women. Uh, a man wants to be seen as strong. I got it together and successful. That's a part of our Western society, which is so dysfunctional. Mm. Um, and so that's why such alcoholism, pornography addictions, all these things, there's just, they just, and then also as, as far as suicide, 
men don't mess around with suicide. They, they're successful because mm-hmm. they don't tell anybody. Yeah, I saw that stat, which was a high, high amount, and then also that yeah, that was that was a very telling stat. And I wanted to say this real quick too that Bradshaw in his book Healing the Shame It Binds You, and even Thompson in his book The Soul of Shame, make the point that the only antidote to shame is exposure. Mm-hmm. But the thing we're most terrified of is what must be exposed. Wow. Um, and Rohr says that if we're ever to be redeemed, it has to be owned, mm. you know. And so, so getting men into that position, I'll tell you uh, probably one of the greatest uh, success stories, I think, of seeing how this works is in the Belize Central Prison. Wow. Working with the male population where violence, when we started, was just rampant because they have such gang situations. So they, they have the men in different living areas and they're usually divided up by gangs. And then they're still trying to kill each other. And so, so getting those guys mm. into a small group, talking about their feelings, <laughs> and talking about their <laughs> lives, um, you would think would be just almost impossible. Mm. But how the violence went down as the men started to talk about their lives and expose themselves to each other. But a lot of it goes back to what Sarah said. You, the infrastructure that we create, um, we call it creating sacred space. Mm. We're just trying to get out of the way mm-hmm. and get each other out of their own ways mm. so that God's spirit can come in here and heal. And so I don't know if I'm answering your question well, but getting men to <coughs> confront this great resistance mm. of being exposed is hard, hard work. Mm. And it's still, and it's, I mean, just look at the statistics in our society. I mean, it's, we're, we're a mess more than ever. Yeah. And then with the virus, the isolation gets worse. Men isolate mm. far more than women. Mm. Um, and I know the women in the groups, uh, and when we've led groups, I, guess, I wish I could get my husband yeah. to, you know, um, uh, so you know that they're not having those discussions at home. Right. And so, mm. um, but it is our mission. Um, that's what a healing community is, is, is getting men and women to step into that process. Mm. Um, a, a lot of our groups are co-ed. Mm. And I think that there's so much, I think the co-ed groups are healthier mm-hmm. than the same-sex groups mm-hmm. because of what the women bring out of the men, but also for the women to be exposed to what it's like because when they start hearing a man be honest and break down, it's just the pressure. Mm. Our society is a mess. Mm. Sorry. It's powerful. Well, I agree. I think for a long time we did usually men, a men's group and a, and a woman's group. Mm. And I think for a long time we were like, Oh, we would never do co-ed. Right. That's a no, (laughs) because we used to say things will get talked about in group when it's male or female that maybe otherwise wouldn't get mm. talked about. We don't want to thwart that process. And then I think we found the opposite. The more we kept doing, we tried co-ed group. We were like, hey, that kind of that kind of works. And then I think as time went on, we started to realize that actually what was happening was those things were still getting talked about. Mm. Actually, people were quite brave mm. in front of each other. And for, for a woman to admit something in front of a man that she thinks she might get shamed for, mm. or for vice versa, a man to admit something in front of a woman that he th- thought he might get shamed for and didn't in the group was incredibly healing. Oh, I get that. Mm. Uh, you could see sort of this relief of, I just said that in front of a woman or <laughs> I just said that in front of a man and they didn't yeah. flinch. Oh, like man. it's okay. 
So I think we've seen actually, we've continued to actually primarily do co-ed groups for that reason. And I will say in my experience of doing groups over the years, I've always said this, I started to notice this trend early on, and that is men take forever to show up in group, but when they come, they stay. Mm. Like I would have men get in the process and stay in the process for like two years. Wow. Just doing group after group after group. And women were always the first to sign up and usually the first to leave. Interesting. Um, and I, I attribute that to what Scott was saying was that women tend to have emotional outlets. Mm. Women do talk to each other quite a bit about things. And so I, I don't know that women saw as much that maybe that wasn't the only outlet they had. So if they didn't want to be there, yeah, you know, it wasn't crucial. But for men, once they stepped into that process, I would see them just... That was it. They were sticking, mm. sticking to it. Wow. Um, and many of my most loyal facilitators over the years, men. Wow. So it's an interesting kind of dichotomy. I don't yeah. know that I have a total explanation for it. Totally. Yeah. Interesting. Well, George, do you want to, do you have anything else that you'd like to ask yeah. and, as we kind of uh, close out and take your time? But um, just wanted to come back to you and see if you had anything to ask. I do. Um, we, Jeff and I have been working with Restore for several years and, um, we really see the work that you guys do, the healing work that you do, being uh, uh, closely woven into to, to what the church does. A church in one hour cannot do what you guys do um, in a group. And so I think it's vital that the church develops partnerships with ministries like yours that um, create safe space for people to be honest about this Christ that we claim to be this healer mm. um, that it's just not preached about on Sunday, but there's space to actually invite that to happen. Mm. So uh, two things. One, I just want uh, something that I've experienced um, in going through groups, both personally, but watching other people. Scott, you alluded to, um, in, in essence, people witnessing to the lives of others, to the struggles of others, to the wounds of others. Um, is in essence a representation of the body of Christ. Um, and uh, But my experience has been it's more than just a representation th of God's love, that it actually is an, a part of God's love, that it's part of how we experience um, God. So uh, I can't see the church f fully doing what Christ desire without mm. these kinds of healing communities being a part of its uh, work. So um, my question to you guys is, what would your hope be? How does the church partner with ministries like Restore? And what do you guys see in ways that we can be more open, more mm. engaged with it to truly see healing come to people's lives? Mm. I'll jump all over that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have strong feelings on, on that. That You know, it's interesting, Aurora, I never heard this before, but he referred to the church as a transactional church versus a transformational church. But it's supposed mm. to be that Christ came to transform lives. Um, transformation just isn't going to happen without vulnerability. Mm. I mean, that is the foundational piece of it. We were just talking about that in a group today that, that it takes humility. Humility has to be at the center of, and, and the only way I'm going to be humbled is to be exposed the truth about myself. And so, I had never heard this phrase before until like the last couple of years, but the ego. And so I think the church has the same mm. problem. They have an ego. And the ego wants to be in control. And nothing makes 
anybody feel less control than vulnerability. Yes. And so um, I think it's, and I'm not, I'm a part of the church, so I want to be a part of the yeah. solution. But I can offer Bible studies and Sunday school classes, all that stuff. And, and again, those are all, I can control that. But to bring in our groups where people are talking about mess and all this tough stuff, it's scary mm. and it's hard to control. And um, and one thing, and I did want to say this other thing too, is that our groups are based on what we would call the human condition that everybody needs to examine. Where are they? Where are they going? And how they're going to get there? And who they are? Who they're becoming? Those are core questions of the human condition. That's what we address in our groups. So I think a lot of people also have a stigma as small groups as well. That's AA. That's mm. that's SA. You know, or you got to be in a in a mental health place and we believe that we all we do know that everybody has a human condition and needs this so i think the church needs to embrace this as it examines are we being a part of the solution to the modern society because i think that if the church doesn't change i don't know if we're going to mm. be around because the younger people are like this didn't work for my parents yeah, and it almost sounds like, and Sarah, I want to get your opinion, it almost sounds like what you're saying is that by uh, by having this as a wide-open facility versus it being through a church, it actually offers, ironically, more vulnerability. It's almost like if you sign up, when you referenced earlier about Sally's small group, that I would be hyper-guarded moving into that kind of small group, but that's that's kind of the paradigm that I would imagine people have to fight is— They've they've maybe been had experience in a church small group and it was anything but safe. It was anything but vulnerable and it was definitely not transformational. So I would imagine even having the word small groups is is got to be or is it transformational on the wrong side? So Sarah, what is uh, to George's question? What is your um, your, your thoughts and input on that? Well, I I'm going to borrow from someone here because I, but I can't remember who it is. So I apologize, but there was a moment and it was a few years ago. I actually think it may have been when we were at Hope Park and you and I would have all these great discussions in George, George's office. And, um, we started distinguishing between the knowledge of God and the experience mm. of God. And I think they both have such a, uh, important place. Church can give you and, should give you a basis for the mm. knowledge of God. And that is important. Um, and biblically speaking, you, you, you need to know where your yeah. anchors are, you know, but I think that maybe it's, there's a bit of an mm. imbalance there where there's a lot of knowledge, but not a, a lot of opportunity for mm. experience. And so George and I would talk ab about that a lot. Like this is that second piece. This is okay. I've heard a lot about God but maybe I've not actually encountered mm. God. And here's where I'm borrowing. There was a metaphor of someone saying, you know, the knowledge of God is like sitting on a tour bus riding mm. around the city and someone's narrating to you on the intercom mm. what you're seeing. But the experience of God is getting mm. off the bus and walking oh, around the great. city. And I think that you can mm. have both. That's the beautiful thing, but you should mm. have both. Sometimes I don't think there always is both. And that's what I think group offers is I'm going to get off the bus. I'm going to actually take the chance to walk around the city. I'm going to see what I find. And I think beauty of group is God encounters everyone in the group in a different mm. way. So God encounters that person. They encounter God in a totally w in the way that's important mm. to them in that process. And again, another part of the miraculous part of group is when people come back after a week, 
you know, you leave them at the meeting, you see them a week later, and they go, I just had this huge revelation wow. this week. Wow. And you go, well, that didn't happen mm-hmm. on my watch, you know. So that's God with them yeah. during the week. And that's the part, something's happening that's outside of group. It's like group continuing. And I will say, from my own personal experience, I grew up in a family that was dysfunctional, and I grew up in a family that was mm. critical, not, did not demonstrate to me love or the mm. love of God. But all my life, I went to Catholic school, and all of my life, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you. And to be honest, it was mm. just empty words. Jesus loves me, great, that's fantastic. I don't see anyone in my life modeling that love for me. Um, so I think it wasn't until... I, you know, got into environments like this. You need a human being to model for you the love of God. I just think that's how Mm. humans work. It's not just going to dawn on you one day, God loves me. And you understand what that means if you've never Mm. experienced love. So that's what group is, I think. We're, for people who've never experienced it, we're giving them a taste. Like, this is how Mm. God sees you. And I'm just like a tiny little drop in that bucket. But by the end of it, I think when we do affirmations at the end of, group and we're telling each other what we see in each other that's god talking mm-hmm. to them um about mm-hmm. who they are how how would i ever fully experience and feel your mm-hmm. love if you don't know the real mm-hmm. me if 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 i c- can't expose everything then i know that it's just conditional mm-hmm. because i because what i'm holding inside me is if you knew the truth everything you would leave me. Yeah, and I think that's that's so powerful. And to Sarah, to what you were, what, what it reminded me of when you were saying that is I've heard the uh, you shift from understanding to experiencing. Knowledge comes from experience. You can under you can have you can understand. Oh, I need to have a small group, and then you experience it as having a massive transformation, and then you know, right? But that's kind of like the knowing of God comes does not come from the knowledge or the understanding of, yes, just like you said, I think a lot of us can relate to being preached to, and you're like, I totally understand, but I'm not seeing any of this in my real life. So, Scott, did you want to say, yeah, Jeff, go ahead, why don't you have a question? Sorry, I'm, I'm getting excited. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how often do you find that the knowledge framework that people bring to group that they gain from their church experiences actually is an impediment mm. to their experiences. It gets in the way. What mm. the, sorry to say, but you know, we always we do the feelings check, and we use Dr. Dodd's yeah. feelings from the Voice at Heart. And one of the feelings on there, which people jokingly would say, the only good feeling is gladness mm-hmm. well sometimes my experience when i do a church group <laughs> gladness <laughs> gladness <laughs> gladness <laughs> because that's what they're supposed to wow you know yeah and i just sit there and shake my head oh jeez, mm. church group no. <laughs> no. No. i mean you're gonna get me in trouble <laughs> but i was going to say that perfect love casts out all fear the number one fear of all human yeah. beings the number one fear of all human beings is to be rejected, yeah. to be abandoned. Yeah. And what shame makes us believe is if you do know mm. all of my flaws, all my weaknesses, all my inadequacies, you will reject me. Mm. And that's why in group where finally I share all those things and you tell me you love me. Mm. So that's why I like what Sarah was saying. 
you know, the church can tell me Jesus loves me all day long, but I need to hear it mm. from you, mm-hmm. from a person, mm-hmm. the body of Christ with full exposure mm. of where I really am and who I'm, what I struggle with. Mm. Then if I hear that, that transforms my life. Mm. That's powerful. And I, I do think that people come in at times with a type of spiritual wounding. I think we've seen a lot of that in group mm. where I've heard multiple people have said church was the place where, you know, you could be fighting in the car yeah. all oh, the yeah. way there. Yeah. The uh, minute you open those doors, yes. you're the perfect your hair in place. happy right. family. <laughs> yeah. And that whole idea that church was the one place you couldn't let anybody know mm. that. Um, and then I think sometimes, and particularly around the feelings, one of the things I've had to start sometimes distinguishing in group is gratitude is does not... E- um, does not mean you cannot have other feelings mm. that when people check in with gladness, I think what they're trying to say is I feel gratitude and that's great, mm-hmm. you know, and you can be grateful, but you can also be grateful and sad mm-hmm. and grateful and angry mm. and grateful and lonely. Mm. And so I think helping people get past the idea that you can only have one emotion because mm. if you don't, you're betraying God's the way, you know, God has blessed you or mm. the way, uh, God operates in your life. And sometimes I do think people are just coming from that sort of transactional belief right? that I do this and therefore God still loves me. Yes. I act like this and God still loves me. I say I'm grateful, cross my fingers, God still loves me, mm-hmm. you know, and in letting people open up and say, it's okay if you don't know exactly how this whole thing works with God, mm. you know, it, you can, you can let go of some of that. Mm. That's really powerful. And I think too, the, uh, having having kids around, it's fascinating because I I've we're trying to do a better job with developing uh, with our two little girls asking how do you feel and multiple feelings come out right happy sad and they'll go through each one, but I do think I'm glad you asked that question because there is this and you said it earlier when you kind of show up um, you just had a fight in the car and then you're showing up to the church with all smiles you know there is that paradigm that um, it is unsafe to show up as the wreck that you are, right? Like you, you have to get clean before you go to the church, which is literally the opposite paradigm of the whole, the whole thing. So it's really um, fascinating. George or Jeff, did you guys have anything else to, to close out with? I, I wanted to give a personal anecdote. I, I was, um, I never forget. I was doing an online group with you guys and the first, uh, the the facilitator and I, I was running groups at at a church at the time. I thought I knew a lot about groups. I'll never forget the facilitator said, "I'm blah blah blah, and I want every one of you to like me and think I'm awesome." And I was like, "Oh, we're in a different world now." And I was like, "That I almost started crying because that's exactly what I was thinking." And it was just that immediate honesty that I was just like, "Where am I?" Like I we're not in. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're not there. We're not in church land anymore. This is a different thing. And, it, and it's so inviting when someone is the first to go, because I think what you were saying is I've noticed in the small amount of experiences I've had with groups is you unlock things in each other. So I say something and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, that I'll let me add to that. And that's the beautiful nature of kind of how we're built together. We talk about oneness and all these things that we want to go after. But you're saying that's experienced in real life group formats with other individuals because that's what we're here to be. We're here to be that for each other. Yeah, I mean, Thompson said that, and he. And I thought it was interesting. He's a psychiatrist, and he stood up there in front of this big training we were in and said that small groups are more powerful. He mm. said in transformation than one on one. And I really believe it's just that that divine mirroring. I can't see 
what you can help me see about myself. Mm. And that's only going to be able to be seen if I expose the truth. Mm. And what Thompson said, it was just the most fascinating thing I ever heard. He said that our, our brains actually transform the narrative of our own stories, our own interpretations of our own lives is transformed as I'm sharing my story. Wow. But it also transforms the listener's mind. So it's just how powerfully God wow. created our minds, our brains to work through. He says they won't work in, in isolation. They only work wow. through intimacy. Wow. I just read this last thing that I heard this quote, um, I think it's from Carl Jung. And I said, this is it. This is exactly what happens in groups. He says, he who looks outward mm -hmm. just dreams, mm -hmm. but he who looks inward awakens. Mm -hmm. And we see it every time we do a small group, that awakening happening in people, coming in touch with themselves, and that truth begins to set them free, and they mm -hmm. experience transformation. They begin, I guess, the journey into that. I just want to thank you guys for... Uh, still having hope in the church and not giving up on us. <laughs> Jeff and I are pastors, and we believe that the kind of hope and healing and um, work that uh, really does bring joy and freedom to people's lives can happen in the church. And thank you for uh, continuing to teach us, and um, we're excited about our partnership with you guys and how we can work together to continue um, to see God's beautiful work come to every heart in every life so thank you guys for sitting down and talking with us yes and thank you guys for listening and we'll be back next time if you need to find out anything about view church you can find us online at www.viewchurch.org in the listening notes we're going to put a lot of stuff about restore small groups how you can get involved but we thank you guys for listening and take care